0: This is the Sport Industry Access Podcast, Episode 3, How Can a Degree in Psychology Provide Career Prospects? Welcome to another episode of the Sport Industry Access Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. My goal each week is to inspire and encourage you to be the best you can be in your profession. It is a very special episode this week. I managed to track down today's special guest, who is on my top 10 interview wanted list for this year. Today's special guest is John Amici. If you don't know him, he is six foot ten, so he's quite tall but he's been mainly recognised for being Britain's most successful basketball player of all time. He has had an impressive 8 year playing career representing teams in the USA, France, Greece, Italy and even playing in the UK for the Sheffield Sharks. Also due to his dedication to the sport, in 2011 he was awarded an OBE from Her Majesty the Queen. Now to all sports scholars and sport fanatics, If you enjoy reading sport biographies, John's book, Man in the Middle, is a must read. What I learned from reading this book is, if you want to achieve something, you just got to put your mind to it. John illustrates that when he showed courage at the age of 17 by moving from Manchester to the USA with a goal to play in the NBA. Now relating to today's show, we'll be discussing how psychology can really provide career opportunities in sport. John, it is an absolute privilege to have you on the show. Please, can you take a few minutes by providing the listeners an overview of your career journey in sport?
1: Um, I was certainly a late starter to sports. I started at the age of 17 to play serious sport, which was basketball. Prior to that, I'd only done what was absolutely mandatory in, um, in in, in school sport, which was rugby at my school. Um, and and I actually got out of rugby the moment I started playing basketball seriously. I was done with I was done with rugby. Um, sport's not really been my my thing. I like to read books and eat pie. That's pretty much who I am. Um, but somehow basketball took a hold of me and sent me off to America, where I went to high school um, uh, in Toledo, Ohio, and I played there for one year. And that that year was simply, I'd already done my A-levels in England, that year was simply to get me good enough to get a scholarship. I did that. I went to Vanderbilt University for a year, um, ended up transferring to Penn State because Vanderbilt wasn't working out um, basketball-wise. Academically, it was great, but basketball-wise, I don't think the coach had the same kind of faith in me that I did. And so I moved to Penn State and um, had a really good, successful career in the Big Ten, um, at Penn State before not being drafted unfortunately but ending up going to the NBA anyway playing in Europe a little bit but then back in the NBA for the remainder of my career.
0: That's great John now relating to today's main topic during a time at college or I should say university in England what inspired you to do a degree in psychology?
1: I'd always wanted to be a psychologist uh, my mother was a GP I watched her work and I knew that the I had a sense, I maybe didn't know, but I had a sense that a lot of her job was nothing to do with medicine, but was rather to do with her interpersonal relationship with patients. It was, it was her presence, her, her mindful presence with patients that seemed to make the difference to them and their families, um, and the injection or the spoonful of whatever it was she was giving them, or the tablet, and, I, and I'm not trying to undermine the efficacy of these things, but... It seemed to me that the thing that really made families and individuals more resilient and more able to cope, and this has been backed up in research in later years, is the relationship that a person has with their, with their doctor. Um, my mother is smarter than, than I, and I knew I wasn't, really gonna, oh, I wasn't really interested in the guts and the goop of being a doctor. So I would had to find myself a way to be a doctor that didn't have to deal with guts and goops, and that was uh, psychology.
0: Fantastic. There's probably a lot of students out there who are probably in your position when you were at university. How did you cope with all that basketball training and also the academic workload?
1: I think it's true that not everything can happen at university. You can't do everything, but I, I also think it's really fundamentally true that you can do an awful lot more than people think you can. So basketball takes up a finite amount of time. And uh, I did then what I do with – I mean, in fact, I did then when I went to university what I did, what my mother did for me when I was doing my revision uh, for uh, what are now GCSEs and, and A-levels, um, where we, we would write out the entire week schedule. And we would put in all the things that are mandatory, all the things that are class where you have to go, all the things that are training that you have to attend – uh travel times, meal times everything that you think is going to take time gets in there, and you suddenly realize that even in a really busy schedule, there are times to do other stuff and and we may take those times to sleep in an extra hour or to go to bed an hour early, and that that can be important sometimes we may that we may take those times to go out on the town, but I just looked at my schedule in college and I was in university, and I was like this this is busy. And there's going to be times when I'm tired, but there is space for me to do other things. There's space for me to talk to the, the graduate students about what, all the really fun stuff you get to do in psychology once you end up in, as a graduate student. There's, there's space to talk to um, the fraternity councils. I didn't join a fraternity in America. I'm not really into them, but I think they're an interesting phenomena, and I want to understand them. There is time to, to get involved in philanthropic stuff which is, I think, personal. In terms of p- both personal development and CV building is as important as anything else you can do. And that's all I did. I just structured my weeks to be incredibly busy but never over full and always flexible enough that on those days when you just really were legitimately exhausted, you took a bit of time that was just you. Whatever you do that makes you feel more rejuvenated afterwards.
0: I totally agree. I think having a sort of regime is so important, especially if you're a busy week in week out schedule looking back from your basketball career with all the teams you played for in europe and also in the states did you work with
1: a sports psychologist i worked with a sports psychologist in um in, in penn at penn state i just saw him actually i just went back to penn state uh, for a, a alumni weekend where all the old guys come back it was quite lovely and This guy called Dave Hugelson, Doctor Dave Hugelson, was our psychologist for the team, and he did a number of things with us. One of the things that I really, I mean, this is the thing about sports psychology; it's so broad. So, you know, there's all kinds of performance angles to things, but the thing, the the part that I really found most useful was he used to come into the locker room when the team was super stressed, when we'd had a difficult run perhaps or whatever else, and people were finding it hard to sleep, hard to rest, he would come in and do these relaxation sessions. Progressive relaxation with some mental imagery. And I really felt a benefit from those. And my teammates did too. And I think it was the, it was the very beginnings at that period, which was what, in the early 90s, Um the very beginnings of seeing how not just technical sports science in terms of physiotherapy is important, but psychologically um, there's a real impact to have on sports performance too.
0: Out of interest, during your own career, did you apply your own studies that you were studying at Penn State
1: into your own performance during your eight-year career? I wish I had. I think... um Sometimes you know we all know that sometimes when we are both the object and the subject of something, it can be quite hard to to, to apply. And, and there are times now that I look back, and it's just so obvious. And if I'd have had me there to advise me, I feel like I would have navigated certain situations far better. But unfortunately, I didn't. Um, and in the pros in those early days, nowadays there are psychologists sports psychologist and also regular psychologist available for a, uh, elite athletes in the NBA. But then it was less of a thing. Um, and I just kind of modelled through a lot of things, partly fooling myself that because of my studies that somehow I was better equipped.
0: So just to confirm, during your time, you, you didn't have a psychologist at all. Was it, did the coach just applied it naturally through the training sessions, for example?
1: Uh, No, I I mean, people have to recognize that sports psychology and certainly the broader psychology as part of mainstream sport has not been an everyday thing, except in the last 10 years or so. You know, people like Steve Peters, you know, they were still doing remarkable work, although Steve was a forensic psych, Uh, Do you know Steve Peters? No, I don't. Steve Peters came up with the chimp paradox. It's a very famous... Uh, book now series he lectures on it he worked with he was one of the guys really um credited with the work he did with british cycling as they made their huge gains and became an olympic power he's also worked with a number of football teams uh premiership football teams but you know the idea that you'd voluntarily have a psychologist on your staff um it was not really mainstream in, in, until the last 10 years. So previous to that, if there's a crisis, if there's somebody who is quote unquote going crazy, then you might engage a psychologist, but you wouldn't have them as a regular fixture. Some coaches handled that part really well. Um, I played for a coach called Glenn Rivers, Doc Rivers, uh, who did not have a doctorate, but was still very smart. Um, and he, he was remarkable in handling and managing and leading a team intuitively, like some people are. He was just really good in that role, managing personalities and and allowing the team to perform. And then I played for other coaches who just didn't have a clue. They were technically brilliant, but were like little insurgents, practically blowing up their own team because of their lack of skill.
0: Now, that's uh, really interesting. In relating to your work you do nowadays, how have you applied psychology to support your career after your career in basketball?
1: I mean, I'm a psychologist nowadays, I work as a organizational psychologist, I started off in marriage and family therapy. And I think that that also I have to say, is is really informative in terms of my work, both in sports and, and large organizations. Um, there's a lot of ways that in organizations, people fall into the type of being either a parent, or a child or a grandparent. Um, I don't do a huge amount of work with sports directly except for the charitable side of things where I work with coaches trying to help them realize that they are more than just teaching technical skills, that they are sometimes a surrogate parent, sometimes they're the they're, they're the only educator that a child will listen to, sometimes they're the only adult that a child will go to with their deepest worries and thoughts and so i think you know that that work is to help them realize they need to be i'm not asking them to be social workers but they need to be more than technicians Um, and that's the main part that i do with sport most of the other work that i do is is strictly corporate i work with um, professional services and uh, intelligence services and interesting sectors like that
0: john i find that really fascinating John, can you explain the sort of work you do within your foundation
1: with schools? Um, I've got a community centre up in Manchester. We've been running since, I don't know, 1990, well, for a long time, 1998 or something like that. And um, we built a community centre there with our own building that now has nearly 3,000 young people a week going through its doors, uh, aged seven years old through to adult. Uh, The goal there was really to try and create an environment where young people could really thrive. Um, I talk about the fact that what I wanted to do was kind of combine the very best of what sport can offer at its very best um, with what psychology can inform. So I wanted to create an intellectually challenging environment uh, as well as a physically challenging environment where young people are encouraged to, to not just kind of be educated, but facilitate their own learning, really really grab hold of it, um, where they'd feel supported by, and this is important because it's rare, really emotionally literate coaches who see young people as holistic human beings and not just athletes. I wanted them to be in a situation where at the end of their time with us, they would be able to communicate effectively with their peers and adults Authority figures would they be able to plan for their future success and take reasonable risks and know what a reasonable risk is, uh, knowing that support will be there because I think these are the kind of transferable skills from sport that that are important, not not whether you can cross a football at age sixteen
0: just relating to what you said about transferable skills, as you probably know, sport athletes careers can run between ten to fifteen years to all those sort of athletes who are thinking of retirement. What bit of advice would you give them from your experience of how to apply their skills on a sports field and apply it to education or other fields of different industries and how it could help others?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I'd be remiss if I didn't remind people that the average age for most careers, even in Britain, most sporting careers, is actually about three years. It's nowhere near ten. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) There are a number of people like the Ryan Giggs of this life who play for... Well, I don't know what he played for, like thirty odd years or something It's a long time, I think he's forty now when he retired exactly, so to get the average down to where it is, you realize that there are people who blip onto the screen of professional or at least elite sports and then disappear. Sometimes they just can't hang, sometimes you know they're not physically talented enough sometimes they they get there and find it's not for them and 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 sometimes they get hurt. But for lots of reasons, that the career is immensely short. So preparing for transition into, for want of a better term, real life, if it starts when you retire or when you're about to retire, it's just way too late. It's not to say that you can't salvage anything, but please think about transition way before that. I knew exactly what I – well, I knew I'd be a psychologist. I think the work that I do now is actually more interesting um, than I could have hoped Uh, And I'm thrilled by that. But if you you wait until it's a year before retirement, what if you find out that the thing you really want to do, you need to get some kind of qualification for? Surely you'd rather start that qualification with the cushion of your professional sports still going on rather than finding yourself thrown out into a world where you have literally no support compared to the support you, you get as a member of a team, especially an elite team where you've got all kinds of people, agents, managers, coaches, support staff hanging around you, you suddenly wake up one day and you realize that although these people will take a call from you, they're not there at your beck and call anymore. So, you know, find out what it is that you need in order to do the job you really want to do and don't make the mistake that many people make. Well, there's two mistakes I think that people make in sports when it comes to transition. Uh, one of them is that they they imagine that the sports job that they've done is the, is the, is the great plan. And they imagine that the thing they'll do next is their backup plan. And I always remind people that no one wants to do their backup plan for 40 years. People want to do their number one plan for 40 years. I am currently doing my number one plan. Uh, This is exactly what I want to be doing. And I think that's the mentality you want to have. The second thing is that in sports, and it starts at a very young age, we, we do fool ourselves as athletes into thinking that our occupation is our definition, that what we do, kicking a football, throwing a javelin, running 100 meters, whatever it is, is who we are. And if you allow yourself to fall into that trap, when you retire, you don't just stop doing what you loved or at least what you were good at. You stop being who you were. And you can see lots of damage that comes from that in the number of athletes who end up self medicating themselves through alcohol, food, sex, whatever it is, but find themselves living very chaotic lives after sport as they search in vain to find out who they really are now without their sport. From a government perspective, do you
0: think there should be more support in this sort of area?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and there, is, there is going to be more support, I think. I, I'm, I can't really talk very much about it, but I'm working right now um, on a new on a white paper with the government uh, and, a, and a committee that's come together around it to talk about uh, athlete safeguarding, which is going to include things like transition into and out of sport. So it is recognized by some important people uh, both within sport and the government, that there, is, um, that there is a gap here in the support that should be required um, just to, to be taking good care of, of our athletes.
0: John, that is really great to hear that people behind the scenes are trying to support these athletes who retire after their careers. John, at the end of each interview, I like to finish with an inspirational question. What advice would you give to a current student at university who wants to pursue a career in psychology?
1: What you can do with psychology is so broad. You, you can do almost anything with it. You can end up working in in intelligence services or in professional services or in banking or in schools. Or, there's so much you can do with it. The real kind of... Um, Uh, the the real kind of narrowing down comes in graduate school, if that's where you go with it. But even if you never go to graduate school, it is an amazing, I think, uh, psychology is an amazing fundamental set of experiences to have to be better at whatever you do, whether it's a parent or a manager or just a citizen, being able to understand a little more about how the world and how other people operate in the world around you. Um. Don't feel limited by it. You know You can do anything you want with this degree and certainly move into really interesting graduate school places if that's what you plan on doing. Um, but the biggest thing is, don't think it makes you magic. There's a lot of psychologists. Every time I meet someone new nearly every time, they will I tell them what I do for a living and they say are you are you are you psychoanalyzing analyzing me right now?" Uh, no and, and, and you know. I'm not a psychoanalyst person, I'm a humanistic psychologist anyway, so I wouldn't be doing that. But there are some people who do psychology who really do think they understand everything about how the world works, and that's the opposite of the perspective that I take as a psychologist. My perspective is that I don't know why anything is happening, but I'm really curious to find out and see if I can help make it better. And if that's your perspective with psychology, I think it can take you and you can take it amazing places. But if you're the kind of person who thinks that, you know, three years of psychology turns you into some kind of mind reader, then maybe psychology is not for you in the first place.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think psychology, when I was studying it from a sport perspective, it's more of a tool, I feel, in regards to connecting with people. And I hope students out there who are studying can really take that bit of advice on board. Lastly, John, how can people interact with you in the sort of work you're doing?
1: Um, probably the easiest way. I am somewhat prolific on Twitter, um, at JohnMHE. If you spell my name right, you will find me. Uh, and then also, if, you, if you're more interested in kind of the, the work side of things and some of, the, some of the interesting kind of psychological bits and pieces that I, that I do... Um, because my my personal twitter will run everything from ranting at stupid athletes to i don't know talking about the food i just made um i tweet a lot of pictures of soup you'll you'll, you'll get used to it um but my other i have two twitters my second is is called amechi perform which is my company's amechi uh, performance is the name of my company and amechi perform is the twitter handle for my company and so on there there's tons of kind of bits of research that I think are interesting or insights on a, on a more psychological front. John, that
0: is fantastic to all the listeners out there. All those links of John's Twitter feeds and websites to his company will be on my website. John, it has been great chatting with you today. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Take care.
0: Wow. What an incredible interview. I hope you found John as inspiring as I did. Most of all, I really hope today's interview was helpful to your own needs, especially to all those current university students. I really do hope John's advice has given you a better awareness of how psychology can be applied to the real world in relation to career opportunities. To all the listeners out there, I would be grateful to hear your thoughts about today's episode. The question I ask you is, what did you get out of it? Please leave your answer on my website in the comment section and I'd love to reply to them. I really want to hear your thoughts of what you think was helpful to you. Even on other topics, if you're an ex-athlete out there who you found John's advice from an athlete's perspective, please comment below as well. Because that's one area of sport I feel that needs to improve on in society. A lot more support for athletes do afterwards. Um, I feel athletes have a great range of knowledge throughout their career. Probably they don't even realise it whilst they're doing all that hard work during their careers. And I always think in life it's all about what you give back to the next generation. So if you wouldn't mind leaving a comment, that'd be great. Also, if you did have that time, I would appreciate if you could subscribe and leave in a review. I've never been an elite athlete, but I'm always a person who wants to improve myself. And I'd love to hear your thoughts in your opinion of the first few episodes of the Sport Industry Access podcast. And I'd love to hear your thoughts because I want to improve this show to your needs. At the end of each episode... I like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. John said, always prepare for transition. The reason I picked this quote for today is as humans, we are always frightened about the future, but most of all, we are frightened about change. And it's that transition and preparation which creates new opportunities in life.